What's up, Big Fact Freaks and No Cap Chaps? We're here for another episode of Big Facts No Cap, the only podcast that's number one with our high-class homies and our low-class bronies. I'm Adrian, here for another episode. Let's get Big Factin'. Let's get No Cappin'. Adrian. It doesn't work as well. I do actually have something that I want to bring in, though. Um, one of... Uh, I was talking to a random hobo on the side of the street uh, who listens to the podcast, and they mentioned that they we should probably, as a public service announcement, bring up from Phil's episode that Phil mentioned twice uh, in a positive light that he would eat armadillo <laughs> given the chance. <laughs> and so I just wanted to give a quick PSA to our audience that eating uh, armadillo is a very good way to get leprosy, apparently. <laughs> So uh, we, as a Big Facts No Cap, do not uh, endorse the eating of armadillos, despite the fact that they look pretty delicious. So Paul, how are you feeling about the beginning of spooky season? We are officially in spooky season. Is it really the beginning of spooky season if they haven't started doing their TBS like 30 days of horror movie countdown? Well, I would hope so, because otherwise they're going to run out of 30 days. (laughs) They're not going to be on the money when they do their 30 day count. Without live TV, the holiday season does seem like less of a stark contrast and difference than the rest of the year now because of the no more cable thing for our generation. I think the other big thing is that as millennials, we don't go to the mall. And so we don't go to Macy's like, you know, and see the uh, Christmas decorations or anything anymore, too, which I think was a, a big part of establishing the wonderment of, this, of the seasons. Mm. Although I guess sometimes when I drive around town, I see like when haunted uh, houses and uh, corn mazes pop up. So, you know, you get a couple of things. Ooh, I haven't done a corn maze in a while. Should, should play we, appa- well, Apparently... Maze. We have the biggest corn maze in the U.S. in uh, our neighboring town of Dixon, California. Oh, really? How's that? Uh, I did it with a group of my roommate's friends the first year I was here, and they kind of had this one friend who just took the map, drew out our route, and so we just casually walked through it. (laughs) It was uh, very easy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I guess that makes sense. I remember the one in Lexington being hard, the Rawls Farm one, but I guess that's because we were children and... (laughs) I have to imagine. It reminds me of that time when uh, our principal, Dr. Kuhn, uh, I don't think he's changed his name in this PC culture, but maybe we should consider it. (laughs) Our uh, principal, Dr. Kuhn, uh, went with a sixth grade class to do the corn maze. And the whole joke of it from the picture in the yearbook or whatever was uh, that he was a very tall man and could clearly see over the corn. Uh, So there's this really cute picture of him with all the sixth graders and him just being like, ah, yeah, I I think we should probably go this direction. (laughs) Can you imagine the cockiness of the cool sixth grader who was like, nah, follow me. (laughs) That's true. I would have started a mutiny and I would have been like, come with me if you want to live. (laughs) In fact, you are actually still stuck in the Dixie County corn maze to this day, Adrian. That's where you record all the episodes (laughs) from. You you refuse to listen to that friend who had the uh, path mapped out. But that also, were you with a group of grad students that did that, like where he just mapped it out with a pen ahead of time and then you guys did the perfect walk? Because that really does feel like a smug, smart person's way to accomplish a task where clearly the fun of it is to do badly like that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't remember if there was a discussion about it. I just know they handed us a map and she sat down with a pen and did it. And then we just went. And so it wasn't really much of a discussion. We just, that's just mm. how it worked out. 
Well, uh, at least you had a nice stroll, a nice stroll through through. Uh... I mean, if anything, we got the aesthetic, and so that's really what we were going for. Yeah. So, uh, spooky season's upon us. Um, uh, as you guys probably know, I'm kind of a a fan of horror year round, but I absolutely embrace the idea of being especially into it during spooky season. Tried to watch a few things so far. Uh, haven't been super thrilled by any horror movies. It's a really sad just kind of state of fact that, like, in general, horror movies are kind of a class below every other style mm. of movie, except for maybe rom-com. Um, it really is, like, a lot of people don't like horror movies because they don't like being scared and they just don't find enjoyment in that. But a lot of people legitimately understand that, like, the mark for a good horror movie is usually still, like, a mark below any actually good movie. Um and there's so many different ways to enjoy horror movies, whether it's the campiness of it or the actual, you know, genuine uh, psychological horror or, like, gore of it. Yeah, but the, the things you named as being a mark below, like, I think it's fair for rom-coms and horror movies to be a mark below because they're trying to accomplish a very specific thing. With rom-coms make you feel, like, a little, like, you're, you're not supposed to appreciate it as, like, film. And with, sometimes you are, but with a lot of them, you're not, really. The same with Christmas movies. That'd be, like... That'd be like critiquing a Christmas movie for not being, like, a high art. It's not really what it's aiming to do. It's aiming to make you feel a certain type of way. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't blame horror com- movies for being kind of campy. Yeah, but, I mean, you, there are some standouts, right? Like, you have your Get Outs. You have your The Witch. Um... Yeah, but, like, with with romance, you, you, you with, with rom-coms, you have, like, Sleepless in Seattle, right? Uh, Hitch, the, the classics. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the ones that are just head and shoulders above the rest. Great cinematography. Hitch, the godfather of uh, rom-coms. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously people can take it who le- love the genre and do something a little bit more artsy with it, but overall... It do, you don't need to to make a good horror movie. Yeah, so I think for me, it's uh, uh, it's always been about chasing the dragon of uh, being really horrified by a movie, which hasn't happened in a long time. Not a brag, just more of like a desensitization. <laughs> and uh, mm. uh, what 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 what's uh, but what's one from like childhood that got you? Oh, we'll see. That's like a, a first interesting love, question. A first love. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think what scared me as a kid. Like, I, like I, I don't think, like, everybody, like, I don't think if I went back and watched these movies, which I haven't, uh, I don't think they would scare me in the same way. I remember being really afraid of War of the Worlds, because the mm. idea of, like, humanity being invaded by aliens and, like, us just having no power to do anything really scared me. And then there was a really, like, I think what's probably a campy movie, where it was, like, a freak show, I think. Like, it was called uh, a freak show, and it was, like, about circus performers and something creepy about that. And uh, I remember I was watching it with my dad and our neighbors and my sister... And it was one of those things where my dad let us watch those movies way too young. And so there was like some really creepy movie or some really creepy part of the movie that happened where like he only had so many hands to cover certain people's eyes, but I wasn't one of them. And so I got to see it and it definitely freaked me out a bit. I can't remember exactly what it was, though. I want to say it was someone's like chest cavity being like ripped open or something. Mm. Although usually nowadays, gore doesn't really get me in, in adulthood. The thing that gets me more than anything else is like um, psychological thrillers about like uh, your perceptions of people not being correct and them being like people who are very close to you or things like that. One that got me as a kid, which wasn't even meant to be a scary movie or a horror movie, Deep Impact. Mm. It was the first time I was introduced to the idea of an asteroid impact destroying all of Earth. And that yeah. freaked me out as a kid, especially the idea of you could know about it like two years ahead of time and everybody knows it's coming and every human is going to die, but there's nothing to do. And we're all just sitting around yeah. like, oh, in two years, the, the entire world's going to be destroyed. 
Yeah, I definitely get that. But yeah, so you were saying it's the uh, the psychological horror of the uh, like sort of betrayal or the not knowing what's going to happen. So it was Get Out one that was like particularly freaky to you. I remember, I think we saw that together, right? We did, yeah. I didn't find it super scary, to be honest. I just found it to be a very good, enjoyable movie. I think um, maybe like The Gift, but even that one wasn't like super scary. It just kind of leaves you feeling very eerie. Um, how about um and this one wasn't meant to be scary either but it had like a sort of that sort of eerie feeling um uh gone girl oh yeah um yeah that was another one that was kind of more of just like a fun ride mm -hmm. also it kind of seemed like they were both into it though right like um, eventually they kind of reveal that his character is but they play him a little bit more like maybe he doesn't he's not as manipulative as her at first yeah 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 and then also, I mean, if, if we're doing uh, Adrian rant time, um, I also don't mind a movie like Sinister that really relies on uh, jump scares. Mm. I, I I know people will, like, talk your ear off about how jump scares are, like, so cheap and, like, there's no emotional reason why you're afraid of it. And so that's stupid and it's just a cheap way to get a scare. I enjoy them. I don't know. It seems like, to me, it reminds me of, like, when people say that hip-hop is all, like, modern hip-hop is all just about drugs and women. And it's like, yeah, if you don't, like, actually follow hip-hop. And then also, I don't mind songs that are like that as well. That's <laughs> also a legitimate way to do hip-hop. Damn, Adrian lo loves songs about drugs and women. You heard it here first, folks. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's visceral, but is there anything wrong with something being visceral, right? Like, it's already, like you mentioned, exactly, not yeah. a high art genre. Like, what's wrong with making you feel the emotion in the, like, easiest way to do it? That would be like, like, could you imagine somebody who felt that way about, like, roller coasters? Like, yeah, the drop was high, but did you really, like, have a reason <laughs> to be scared of the drop? Like, Well, I think it would even be someone who was like, yeah, I thought the drop was fun, but it was unearned. <laughs> I have no reason to explain why I was that high up to begin with, and that's why I don't think it's a good <laughs> way of uh, feeling exhilarating. That's exactly what it is. It annoys me so much. I do. I do have a. I do have a soft spot for both uh, the seventies and the modern remake of Evil Dead. Those are both fun movies. I've never seen Evil Dead two, the actual mm. sequel from the seventies, from the era of the first one. But did we watch Evil Dead together? Movie theater. I watched it. It might have been with you. I remember watching it with Adam and Hunter. Definitely with Hunter. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, we okay. both remember being yeah. with Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> i love that um yeah i thought the remake was actually quite panned like yeah i know but i already think horror movies are so stupid that it being stupid wasn't really an issue for me yeah 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 it was a it was a pretty fun experience definitely if anything one of the things horror movies have going for them is they're super fun to go watch with other people mm. i still i still remember going to see the devil inside in theaters and i think famously it has one of the worst endings of any horror movie ever and so the collective shock of everyone in the audience when that was the end of the movie, everyone was like, what the fuck? <laughs> everyone was like getting in line to try and get their money back. Like uh, just a wonderful moment of like collective mob mentality of like, well, fuck this shit. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm not as desensitized as you. So I still find myself after I see a scary movie, not when I'm with other people, but once I'm alone, I'll I'll get like the like the shivers and the like, Ugh, I feel scared shit. <laughs> So wait, you'll do the, like, you get home and you check behind your shower curtain and you check your car when you get in. Um, uh, 
to make sure you're safe. No, I mean, not quite as cartoony as that. You know, that. Paul, those things that women have to do every day of their lives. <laughs> um, oh, I do do, the, okay, of, of the cartoony things. And this hasn't happened in a while, so I'm not sure, but it, it was something I used to do in high school after a scary movie was I do do the, the like, start slowly speeding up until you're eventually almost at a half sprint to get to your front door, walking from your car to your house oh, after really? seeing a scary movie. <laughs> But I guess it's been a while since I've had, like, when you live in a city that's a little too packed with people, it almost removes that because it's like you always are, I don't know, like walking into an apartment when you can see other people there, like, even if it's nighttime, you, like, you just see the lights of everybody's, yeah. like, rooms being on and stuff. Like, there's, it, there's something about it that kind of removes that feeling of, like, isolation and fear of maybe being in, like, a suburban neighborhood. So it just, the moment when you're alone after a scary movie, you don't feel quite as alone and vulnerable, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i get that uh yeah i mean i don't really have that like i said in a previous podcast although i don't actually remember if it was cut or not but uh my preferred way to watch a horror movie is alone at night with an edible so yeah you're really trying whole... to like you're trying to like play on hard mode because you're like i need that rush again <laughs> i'm just trying to feel something man <laughs> oh you know what a movie i just recently watched was um the perfection which is on netflix and uh it, it stars the the female lead from get out as well as the female lead of uh dear white people uh not a very good movie but there is a pretty good sex scene in the beginning so <laughs> paul i know you have that i know you have that website where you list uh every sex scene Mr. that Skin. people's favorite actresses are in yeah i know you're a big fan of that so you can uh go ahead and add that to your list um can can i make a suggestion for you you need to you need to charge your laptop to like if your laptop has one of those features that says like oh two and a half hours remaining or something you need to do that go mm. camping in the woods leave your phone at home mm. uh set up your set up your tent wait for the sun to set turn on the movie watch just that and then spend the the rest of the night out in the woods yeah, that's a good idea i think it would depend on what type of movie i watch and actually this is something i wanted to bring up really quickly is that uh, i've had some really funny conversations with some of my friends where one of them her particular thing is that like the idea of a random human going crazy and killing people or there being like a zodiac killer that doesn't scare her but the idea of something supernatural like a mummy does <laughs> and i just find that so cartoonish and hilarious <laughs> like the idea of a vampire is scary to her but not like an actual human that's deranged um which i'm very much the opposite of that like the more realistic the type of horror that could happen is like to me what actually what's scariest to me is my fellow man <laughs> uh whereas to her it's the idea that there might be a flying monster that's coming after you <laughs> Do you have anything like that, Paul? Do you have do you have like a good like specification of what you're actually what what really gets to the core of you? What 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 really scares you? We should probably be saving this conversation for the Halloween episode, but we're already into it. As a kid, monsters specifically, and one when the Scooby Doo live action movie came out, they put oh, such yeah. a perfect face on the monsters I'd already been imagining what felt like my whole life. <laughs> that it that movie isn't scary it is like very goofily done but specifically those cgi monsters from the first live action scooby-doo movie mm -hmm. i was like oh my god that's exactly what i've been envisioning my whole life as the perfect like terrifying monster that would like come out and like kill me and so that one really got you yeah no it didn't really scare me at all but because the movies played too goofy but just the design of those characters i was like well that is like the right that's weirdly horrifying hmm I guess now as an adult, I'm more with you. Like, something about being deceived by somebody you trust can be weirdly horrifying. There was, like, one episode of This American Life put out where it was about being lied to by a loved one, 
where some of them weren't even meant mm-hmm. to be scary and i felt my skin like tingling yeah absolutely i totally get that outside of that i i don't really have a stomach for slashers i don't like seeing things like saw that's probably the type of thing where i'm more likely to turn down an invite to than a straight up horror movie is a horror movie that's specifically billed as like you're gonna see a lot of blood and guts and like gruesome dismemberments mm-hmm. i just it, i'm not even sure it scares me more just it like it's not fun just upsets yeah, you just kind of upsets yeah. me yeah, I'm just going to recommend to you to watch the BBC show, and I might have showed you the first episode of this. I don't know if I've already introduced this to you while you were visiting, but you should watch um, Inside Number 9, a comedy horror anthology series on BBC Two. Mm. Um, I think it's up on Hulu for uh, as far as streaming, but that might have changed by uh, by now. And specifically... Oh, so you'd say it's a, it's a Hulu show. <laughs> it's a show on Hulu. But specifically, I would, I would recommend the... Uh, and and some of them like they really differ between comedy and horror like some of them are comedy the whole time and then there's a twist ending that makes it horror just because of like it recontextualizes all the comedy as like sinister um some of them are like horror throughout but then there's just like a joke here or there um so it's like a really interesting anthology series and that totally that's all pretty disconnected and there is a christmas special that i think opens up season three that was like legitimately skin tingling um mm. and disturbing to watch so um because it was actually one of the ones where there was a twist ending that recontextualized like it was creepy throughout and then there was uh and then there was a twist that recontextualized why everything felt creepy throughout and it was like actually very like it threw me for a loop dope yeah that sounds dope i'll check it yeah. out uh and then i'll do a quick media roundup um there's a show on Netflix, it's originally on the CW, called Two Sentence Horror. It's an anthology series. It's not good. Don't watch it. Um, there's a horror movie on Netflix called The Perfection. Not very good. Wouldn't highly recommend <laughs> it. Uh, we're just going to go through all of these. I think in the last year I've watched Escape Room. That's like a fun goof up if you want to like watch with your friends. Um, I, would, I would suggest that maybe. Uh, Sinister 2 wasn't very good. Um perfect blue was great i think phil didn't like it but i think we have very different tastes in movies uh we just actually watched ready or not earlier this week because he liked it so much and uh is that the sequel to ready player one no <laughs> uh yeah i don't know can't think of anything else off the top of my head and then in terms of other media well now that we're in spooky season i already talked about him before but i'm gonna give another plug to junji ito you can find his stuff online if you want to just like take get a taster of it uh but you know support the artist if you end up liking the art because of the pandemic that we're in, Billions Alone is a really good Junji Ito story to read right now that is particularly pertinent. You know, check that out. I wanted to go ahead and we've talked about uh, horror for a while this episode, and it's actually been a really enjoyable conversation. But I wanted to bring in our topic for today, which is actually the only thing that's scarier than all these ghouls, goblins, and monsters we've talked about so far, which is the capitalist class the gentleman this episode we're talking about fancy men we're talking about gentlemen we're talking about high class people we're talking about the lizards who wear human skin suits to control you and use these class signifiers to keep you down so adrian what 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 do you got for us today what's coming up what do you got for us thoughts opinions articles hit me what's what's the uh like three word theme that we're going for fancy boys gentlemen um, yeah high society gentlemen toxic masculinity (laughs) um 
no girls allowed. Well, but that's the thing take about a breather, ladies. These people aren't uh, no girls. Are... Take take a break on this one, yeah. ladies. This one's for this the one's boys. for the kings, the fellas, the boys. Uh, yeah, this one's for our men. I wouldn't say toxic masculinity because that's kind of the thing about gentlemen, right? A lot of the times they're actually the most feminine people in our culture. Like, I still find it problematic. It's a lot of like Eurocentric under underlying um kind of uh, oh the, no xenophobic. i mean they're all prep school pedophiles they're not good people but i don't know if they're like toxic <laughs> masculinity toxically mean? yeah i don't know because whenever i think of gentlemen i think of um you know those like uh subscription boxes where you pay 50 bucks a month and they'll send you like a new cologne every <laughs> month with also like a a new wooden tool and a new thing for your bar and for some reason a hatchet even though you live in brooklyn <laughs> like <laughs> like those things to me like those bespoke packages to me are like basically toxic masculinity in a god box. damn it adrian you know this beard needs as much oil as it could possibly get and i need those boxes <laughs> <laughs> i need i need all my shaving equipment to somehow have a 1800s uh, a, a 19 uh, a 19th century feel you know what i'm talking about <laughs> like it all needs to feel oh, like oh. raw blades touching my skin <laughs> You don't have a, a gentleman's beard though, because even beyond these like signifiers How of classic you? masculinity, you also have a dirty Arab beard that's unkempt, <laughs> as opposed to a classy European beard. <laughs> that is true. Um, I still can't get the class signifier right. I could be wearing my beard like a Brooklynite, like incredibly well kept and nice, but I do have it more yeah. like a more like a ridiculously unkempt beard. But I mean, I keep it relatively short. It's not an ISIS beard. You're right. I wouldn't describe you as having an ISIS beard though. <laughs> What's your, what's your hit rate with going through uh, TSA? Not good. As in, okay. zero, 0% not <laughs> randomly checked, but... Not harassed? <laughs> well, better keep that... You better add some more jojoba oil to your... Or your jojoba oil to your, uh, to your beard, my mm, boy. Mm, more tea tree oil to keep it full mm. and lush. Yeah, I don't know. So I, I get what you're saying in terms of how the way that these are actually manifested, it's often men who are like put on a working class aesthetic of a flannel and a beard, but like have never worked with their hands in their life. Not to be like a Bill Burr-esque, like uh, these men or these Brooklynites are all getting participation trophies and LARPing as uh, gentlemen. But uh, to me, it still rings of a lot of toxic masculinity. There's some of that, but then there's, uh, I, th I think specifically one of the people we're doing is like uh, somebody who's been featured in the show before, David Tank, who's very much like an old money British and Hong Kong, like, restaurant tour gentleman and that's a little bit less like he's mm -hmm. not putting on a fake beard he's keeping meticulously shaved with like really well coiffed hair uh stylings uh mm -hmm. r.i.p i mean back when he was still with us yeah i think um we we're gonna do a bit about our favorite three gentlemen and i, I was gonna do as a joke one of mine was gonna be gus frings from breaking bad <laughs> he uh, is kind of yeah and actually the second advice column the second advice columnist that I, or the one that I'm bringing in today kind of has a similar vibe to him. Um, do we want to? I, I don't even have any picked out in my mind. I uh, let me think. Favorite gentleman. Favorite gentleman. Um, you might need to give me a second if I'm, I need to come up with something funny. Do you have anything? Uh, obviously, number one with a bullet, Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> Milady, Milady Grimes. <laughs> Milady Grimes. <laughs> Presenting Mr. and Mrs. Musk and Grimes. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll answer I'll answer Elon Musk with Dorian Electra, one of my favorite gentlemen. Okay, I, well, see, that's a non-toxic gentleman right there. No, yeah, not toxic at all. Yeah. Um, and I'll follow that up with um, Eric Trump. <laughs> and last but not least, Don Draper. 
He's also free. I was of trying to think who's who's that who's that rapper that's really corny and had that song with Kendrick where it's like he always dresses in a suit is his thing and he worked with Janelle Monet. It's not Jadena, is it? It's Jadena, yeah. <laughs> mm. That reminds me of uh when I was uh, in my young days in my metal days, I went to go see a band called Upon a Burning Body that always performed in full tuxedos, but it was a mafia theme, not a gentleman theme. Mm. Um You know, actually I don't know what the story is behind this. I wanna say it has to do with his wife, um, being from Charleston and him kind of picking up the kind of high class aesthetic of certain Charlestonites. But one of my favorite comedians, Paul F. Tompkins, is notorious for always dressing in really nice three piece suits everywhere. And he's someone where I know because I know his um, enough of his personal opinions from like stuff that he said on podcasts that I don't think he's like toxically doing that at all. It's just something he enjoys doing for himself. Um, but yeah, it is very much like he's always uh, he's always on point. He's always on fleek with his suit game. King shit for the fellas. All right. <laughs> This week, I am just now pouring myself a second glass of this Jack Rabbit Abbey Ale. Comes in a bomber. Um, it is the Bad Habit Belgian style Abbey Ale. And I think so far in the podcast, I've caught myself only saying, like, this isn't my particular favorite style of beer. But that's getting flipped on its head today. Belgian beers are like some of my absolute favorite beers. They're always super well balanced, super well crafted. Um, one of the best Christmas presents I ever received is when my brother started dating his uh, Belgian boyfriend. He sent me three really nice bottles of beer for Christmas. Uh, so one of my favorite styles of beer, always really good, always well-balanced, always a little malty, always really complex and flavorful. And I think Jackrabbit does the style a lot of justice. Um, I'm going to take a quick sip. Yeah, just a really good version of the style. Uh, I think sometimes I would like something a little bit lighter, but it actually works great because I think the extra depth gives it a little bit more complexity and it's a very fun thing to just sip on. All right. So, Paul, yes. this aperitif. Um, so, to begin this journey of, uh, not to give you guys too much behind-the-scenes knowledge, but oftentimes, um, because I have more time off and I work less than Paul, I'm the one who will, like, kind of take the day thinking about what our theme should be. And so this started with me reading an article about why men advice columns don't seem to survive very well. And so what I have here is an introduction for an advice column that only lasted three articles. Mm. Um but what I like about it, it has a really good example at the bottom of their introduction page of why men shouldn't write advice columns. And then also going back to that original column, they actually used this column as a juxtaposition of what a good men advice, men's advice column looks like, as opposed to another uh, article that, or another advice column that they point out uh, that they kind of pointed out as being a little bit toxically masculine. And that's actually the other uh, advice column that I'm bringing in. So Before we start this, is the... Is the, is the... I'm I'm worried that it's because we are also we're not advice columnists and we're not giving advice usually like to people who are asking us for it. We're we're mocking the whole concept, but is this gonna strike us down out, out of our game? Is is this guy gonna end up being a critique of us? Uh no no no, because I think we're safe because and I don't want to be too much like a you know a John Oliver John Stewart type of like we're comedians. You're not actually supposed to take what we're saying seriously. But I mean, that kind of is the point. Like, yeah. at no point are we telling you to take what we're saying seriously or to actually assume that we're trying to give good advice. Uh, I'm okay with hiding behind that veneer. <laughs> but yeah, so anyways, this is an advice column written for men by a woman. And there's this huge introduction where she lists kind of the history of men writing advice columns and then the kind of questions that men ask and how if you like Google, can a man blank? And you see all kind of the like toxic stuff where men don't know whether or not they can wear makeup or cry in public or whatever. Um, ooh, ooh, so Adrian, let's end... not go too fast. Let's not spoil any of our articles. <laughs> okay, sorry. I haven't actually looked at your article yet, but um 
At the bottom is a newspaper clip, and it's forwarded by Steve Sanderson from my hometown of Gilbert, South Carolina, and it's an old-school advice column from an old newspaper, so I'm just going to read it out. We're not going to give our opinions on it. I, I just really think it's a funny read. So, Dear John, presumably this is an advice column from someone named John. <clears throat> Dear John, I hope you can help me. The other day I set off for work, leaving my husband in the house watching TV. My car stalled, and then it broke down about a mile down the road, and I had to walk back to get my husband's help. When I got home, I couldn't believe my eyes. He was in our bedroom with the neighbor's daughter. I am 32, my husband is 34, and the neighbor's daughter is 19. We have been married for 10 years. When I confronted him, he broke down and admitted that they had been having an affair for the past six months. He won't go to counseling, and I'm afraid, and I'm, afraid I'm a wreck and need advice urgently. Can you please help? Sincerely, Sheila. Paul, do you have any quick thoughts about that one before we get into the answer? Obviously, the answer needs to be leave them, but it sounds like you're bringing this in because they give them a way worse answer, so I'm interested. All right, here's the answer from John. <clears throat> Dear Sheila, a car stalling after being driven a short distance can be caused by a variety <laughs> of faults with the engine. Start by checking that there is no debris in the fuel line. If it is clear, check the vacuum pipes and hoses on the intake manifold, and also check all grounding wires. If none of these approaches solve the problem, it could be that the fuel pump itself is faulty, causing a low delivery of pressure to the injectors. I hope this helps. John. Well, that's a, co a comedic answer. That guy didn't really misunderstand that. <laughs> I think this is, a, this is an old-timey column. I think that's uh, I think it's true. That's awesome. I checked Snopes.com. That's a real one. Yeah, I don't know. I'm mostly just confused, but okay. <laughs> All right, there we go. That's our aperitif. Okay. Well, I've brought in one more time. Um one of my one of my uh one of my go-to advice columnists just because he never fails to confound and and entertain me mr david tang of the financial times so the question i've brought in for you today adrian is is it okay to cry in public and it's not a long question so i'll just get into it um december 11th 2016 uh, i see what you mean by the foreshadowing is it acceptable to be seen crying in public are those who manage to resist stronger characters? Oh, is that it? Yep, that's it. That's the question. No. Um. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a uh, a split here between crying in public in a way that's um, vulnerable and emotional, and crying in public in a way that's juvenile. Um, and I, I'm going off the top here, so I don't really know if that's actually a distinction that matters, but I think crying because you feel emotional or something like that, like, it, it, like you could almost see this in the same way that that last, uh, column was hyperbolic of someone being like, I'm at a funeral for my mom and dad and sister because they all died in a horrible plane crash. Am I allowed to cry during the funeral, even though it's in public? <laughs> like, um, that's a very obvious yes. Um, but, uh... I'm sure there are probably like other examples where not because of a manly thing, but because of like a adult thing, it kind of well, seems ridiculous. So my thing is, I think it's acceptable to cry in public and I think it doesn't matter whether, and this person doesn't gender it. So I would say, obviously this goes for both genders. It's acceptable to cry in public. It's at something that makes you feel emotional. It's not acceptable to cry in public as a as an argument tactic either with like some sort of customer support or to cry because you're not getting your way in some sort of public social situation Ooh, what if you're getting a ticket from a police officer though i guess that 
it's not unacceptable. It's just mostly it kind of is probably not right. <laughs> you think it's too uh, manipulative? I think it's slightly manipulative. Um, mm. I also think in work situations, like like if somebody else got a promotion you wanted and it was like it was a fair situation, it's not fair for you to try to make the other person feel guilty. And I understand if you can't hold it back, but it, like I think it's probably your duty to like not make a scene about that now the difference is like if you're emotional because something in your life happened like somebody passed away you saw like a really sad movie like something emotional happened yeah i was about to say i think one one like kind of like classic situation of this would be like you're on a date and you're watching a sad movie and you want to cry that's i think that's perfectly acceptable because that's because that's not like a manipulative cry there's nothing for the other person if you're crying in a way that's going to make another person feel bad that's different than crying in a way where you're in it together with the people around you right 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 Um, oh so you're saying that the distinction is a communal versus an antagonistic cry yeah hmm interesting i wouldn't have thought about it in that way i don't think i have anyone in my life who well uh, other than that there aren't a lot of people in my life who would use crying as like a manipulative tactic so for me my mind immediately went to are you expressing um yourself in a way that's still mature even though crying is sometimes seen as immature or are you doing it in like a juvenile way for some reason that's the distinction in my mind mm. all right well i don't know if i have a lot of uh i i mean i feel like it's it, it's interesting to me to write into an advice columnist about like fundamentally an emotional question but i guess people write into david tang about etiquette and how to be gentlemen so um it makes sense does it make sense? Yeah, so do you have predictions of what David Tang is going to say as a gentlemanly person? Oh, I'm 100% he's going to be like, you always need to, uh, a gentleman always has a handkerchief with him at a moment's mm. notice for his own tears or for his ladies. <laughs> no, you have two separate handkerchiefs, one for you, one for guests. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I feel like he's gonna he's gonna give you some sort of like technical technical gentlemanly advice. I don't think of David Tang as uh as too masculine to like he's not gonna suggest you don't cry. I don't think that's gonna be a part of it. Right. Yeah. It is, I was kind of wondering is, about that. It is quite a long answer, so I'll go ahead and jump into it. Yeah, sure. I think we kind of got everything. Like, I think that I would say about the question out. Somehow his answer looks longer than everything we've said, so I'm interested what points he has to make. I think we're going to get more meat out of the uh, answer than out of the question. One should never be criticized for showing spontaneous emotion, and particularly when someone in the public eye is involved in a personal tragedy. Those who burst into tears must always be regarded with sympathy. But does the same rule apply to tears of pesos? Remember George Osborne being caught with tears welling in his eye at the funeral of Margaret Thatcher? Would he have been a sterner man if he had held back tears? Probably. According to the belief that the British go around with a stiff upper lip, a gentleman, especially an officer, is taught to be reserved with his emotions. At the annual Cenotaph ceremony on Remembrance Sunday, nobody is seen crying. Any any opinions about that first part, Adrian? About paragraph one? Uh, it seems okay. Actually, as soon as he started talking about it, it brought up a stark memory from uh, if you've ever watched full metal alchemist uh brotherhood yes <laughs> really good scene where yeah where uh uh what's the uh mustang um when uh his friend dies and they're at the funeral and uh oh, yeah. he talks to hawkeye and he says it's a terrible day for rain and she says it's not raining and then she sees him crying and she says yes it's a terrible day for rain oh really yeah scene. okay yeah that was emotional 
Um, some latitude should always be allowed for men weeping in public. I burst into tears at Mark Burley's memorial service as his dogs were led down the aisle at the end. There was, however, also a sense of joy, as the British regard funerals and memorial services to be a more celebration of life than a memorialization of death. Unlike, say, us Chinese, who always regard funerals with morbid solemnity. We don't do laughter at funerals, we don't have eulogies, and we don't do wakes. But back to the British funerals. Men and women are often seen sniffing, rubbing their eyes, or blowing their noses, which all seems to be acceptable. At Princess Diana's funeral, there must have been an ocean of tears. It reminds me of Shelley. Unfathomable sea, whose waves are years. Ocean of time, whose waters of deep woe are brackish with the salt of human tears. That game was not nearly as good as Ocarina of Time. Ocean of Time? <laughs> Shelley was big on tears. In The Mask of Anarchy, he wrote of Lord Eldon, his big tears, for he wept well, turned to millstones as they fell. Yeah, okay, this is pretty David Tangy. He's just, uh... <laughs> He's just, just quoting and showing off what he knows. Yeah, it's very much a little bit of a show-off answer. Uh, I myself am easily lachrymose, as is my wife. On many occasions in bed, ooh, David, we have looked at Ew. each other with tears in our eyes, having watched Lassie come home or the story of Hichiko. I have also spontaneously cried on hearing extraordinary pieces of music during sad periods in my life. I think, I've, yeah, did you cry at music, Adrian? Have you ever cried at music? Yeah, of course. I listen to sad boy music. Yeah, but I still think it's pretty rare for me. I think it has to be, like like he said, a pretty extraordinarily, like, like I have to be sad in general listening to sad music. Um, yeah, Sad music think... can't get me there by itself. No, no, no. I mean, like I said, I listen to it a lot. So it's not like I'm just every day in my car bawling on my way to work. <laughs> um, but definitely, yeah, it can certainly hit me at certain times. And, um... There are certain topics that always seem to get me. Anything about your parents and then anything about like feeling like you don't know you're in the right direction in life usually can get me. It would be almost suicidal to listen to the second movement of Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony if one is already morose. Or the famous arias from Samson and Delilah or Orpheus and Eurydice. Okay. Damn, David. Damn. Yeah, yeah. I think this is this is classic, like... Isn't this what being a gentleman is all about? Stunting on other people, showing them that you're... I was about to say, if uh, language can be described as flowery, that was a goddamn botanical garden. <laughs> right? Like, and it's... I don't know, like, does anybody know all of these references? Are the Financial Times the readers, like, coming out of this being like, I... He explained this in the best way you possibly could explain this because I got every <laughs> reference. So it all made sense beginning to end. I think... A little bit of it has to be like the shame of not understanding it is what makes you feel fancy. You know, actually, this is a really good point. I was actually going to bring this up when I introduced my column advice uh, person, my, my uh, columnist this week. But I might as well bring it up now. Uh, he does the same thing where like I was reading some of his other questions and answers. And he mentioned um, the uh, subjectivity that Kant would bring up during an argument. And to me, it was very obvious that it's like a very much in the way that the main character that Jason Schwartzman plays in Bored to Death, where you know enough about a subject to reference it for like a joke or for like an argument. But if someone actually sat down and talked to you about like Kant, you wouldn't know anything about it. Mm. Like literally like when he talks to his girlfriend in the CVS or whatever, 
and he's talking about how he's changed and he's like well the buddha says when a man walks across the room he comes back another a changed person and i was like there's no way he's not taking that out of context or that like he definitely didn't just hear someone else say that and use it in that way <laughs> like it's so obvious that you just know barely enough about people where there's enough name recognition it's just this kind of like pseudo intellectual scholar scholarliness that really kind of gets on my nerves because it's kind of what I do too. <laughs> I'm very self-critical about it. Yeah, but isn't that the funniest way to be? That's better than actually knowing about these old, dead, lame people. <laughs> but no, you're right. People do use it as a tool to kind of deceive and justify like their own their own points of view as correct. When it's like sometimes, you know, I I'm not trying to be a populist here. I'm not trying to get those Trump supporters voters. But sometimes like plainly stated makes the most sense. For STEM writing and for science communication, that's like the golden rule that you're always taught first. But uh, I mean, overall, also, who doesn't appreciate a bit of flowery writing? Who doesn't? I, I enjoy feeling intimidated sometimes. I know that's like weird. I kind of like yeah. it when people stunt on me in that sort of way sometimes because it's like, oh, cool. I'll learn about these things. Um, I appreciate the aesthetic of it, which yeah. is basically what the gentleman thing is all about is I think it's very much like substance over style. Well, um, style over substance. I'm not too upset at David Tang. I'm, I'm kind of noticing he does this, but this wouldn't mean that at all. I'm trying to say that I wouldn't love to hang out with him and hear him say all this shit to me in person. And oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, dude, totally. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason to cultivate it. I'm sure it worked great for him for job interviews and dates. Um, well, he was a restaurateur, so I don't think he ever had to go on a job interview. But yeah, I'm, dude, it worked, it worked great on dates. Oh, yeah. Um, Everybody want to taste that Tang. So, gentlemen, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a good vibe, um, but yeah, it's definitely a curated vibe. It's a vibe where you've curated a personality. I don't think anybody just acts like that naturally. It's also a vibe that has no chill. <laughs> um, it just seems exhausting. It it is. You have to you have to do it. You have to do it twenty four seven. If you let that mask slip, you've let it slip forever. You're not gaining back your gentleman vibe after somebody's seen you like eat Nutella with your fingers. <laughs> yeah, that's when uh, Adam lost his gentleman his gentlemanly vibe to me was when we came back to my dorm after cookout and he started dipping his chicken nuggets in my jar of Nutella. <laughs> <laughs> but that's when he gained a way better vibe of just uh... just the everyman. <laughs> <laughs> just the everyman. Adam 2020. All right, Paul. So our second article today is coming from the one and only the gentleman scholar. Uh, this is a slate column uh, now defunct, but had a pretty good run. And this is by Troy Patterson, a very suave looking guy. If you look up the article that were or if you click the link in the description, you can see a picture of him. He always puts one at the beginning of his um, articles. Uh, very suave, very uh, dapper, you know, knows what a a collar stayer i don't even know what I, actually honestly i forgot what the thing was he, he has things for his suits that i didn't even know exist so that's the kind of fancy man that he is he's got tie clips and other shit very fancy man kind of a soft-spoken man definitely knows his literary references uh writes a lot about like his favorite cocktails he had like a whole series apparently on martinis and like a whole like one of his best articles that he says is his best article is about the negroni the negroni oh my god so was he the guy who started was he the guy who started that trend i don't know i actually love negroni so i have no issue with him writing i know but it. it like you know it was like the type of thing that it wasn't really around and then all of a sudden like after 2016 or 17 it was around a lot <laughs> oh 
Ooh, I don't know about that. I don't think he has enough sway with young people for that to be a thing. Because I think for old people, they've been drinking Negronis I, maybe since it's forever. Like, maybe more than Negronis, like Campari made a big comeback. Like just as a, now it's something you see all the time in a lot of mixed drink recipes. A Campari and Aperol? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think he might have actually. I think he had a whole article of Campari, so. He was either riding the wave or he was one of the people who started it, but, um. Yeah, so he was he's a he's been a film critic, he's been a TV critic. I think another one of his most notorious articles was his uh takedown of Game of Thrones that riled up a lot of people. <laughs> I read through his Reddit AMA and couldn't find anything super interesting besides a couple of those things, but he seems like a as much as uh I think it's effortful and like just not super it's kind of uptight to be a gentleman. He seems like an actually kind of like a genuinely nice person. Although as I said before in my previous intro the article that I read summing up like why men advice columns don't work did kind of point him out as this example of like this kind of overly outdated, toxic way of trying to be a man. Uh, and I well, kind of agree with that. So before we start, it's it just kind of reminds me like I actually that that description of him, I would never I don't know if I would want to be in a room with him talking to him because he'd probably make me feel bad about myself and it would be like difficult to get him to talk and stuff. But I do. I wouldn't want to be interviewed by him because I think we've had this discussion before where he is the kind of person who cares about everything you do mm. during an interview and every way you exactly. So he's probably a difficult person to be around, but I do appreciate that his opinions upset people and throw people off base, like his takedown of Game of Thrones. Or, like, I just remember, like, sitting at a lunch table at work and one of my friends, she went, I just, I don't get Rick and Morty. I kind of don't like it. Everybody seems so upset. And even though I like Rick and Morty, it just made me so happy that somebody genuinely mm-hmm. had that opinion and it was upsetting everybody. Uh, I don't I don't know what that says about me, but I just kind of enjoy that, like, that person who just kind of, like, throws a wrench into everybody's, like, perfect idea of how what you are or aren't supposed to be. Yeah, I think for him, you wouldn't call that trolling. You'd call that being a provocateur. Yeah, provocateur. And it just r- reminds me of somebody who's maybe a little bit similar, the music critic who's uh, famous on certain parts of the internet that will go unmentioned, Piero Scaruffi, who wrote like the his most famous thing that always gets kind of thrown around is his takedown of the Beatles mm. as just being like one of the worst rock bands to ever become famous. And like, why do people not acknowledge that they're like middling talent yep. at best and it's just like yeah i mean it'll never not be funny to link to i link enjoy to that, that because i've done the same thing but without the authority to do so <laughs> yeah he has a lot of like takedowns of like classic rock like a classic rock uh that people are supposed to love or just generally he just will attack things that are beloved in a really like funny and uh kind of from like a uh, somebody who has the like you said the what, what was that word you use he has like the the credentials to back up disliking mm. the thing as actually being like a very like knowledgeable cinephile or music file and there's something there's something fun about watching that happen even when it's something i like just watching it get torn down huh what's wrong with me well that's a whole other episode <laughs> probably like a five-part series um yeah really quickly i'll just say the provocateur is easily my favorite jack white sideband. <laughs> is that um, a real thing no, he has the raconteurs, which kind of sounds similar. That's the whole basis of that joke. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Shout out to the White Stripes. And then also, uh, I will go ahead and say, despite my like middling opinion of him, he's clearly a very intelligent person and a very good writer. So you can't take that away from him, like mm. no matter what you want to say about him. So this question is from October 15th, 2014. 
here we go. My fiancé and I are separated, by a big distance now, and as comes with such separation, our texts and conversations occasionally drift to a sexual nature. Ooh. In these conversations, I have always struggled to find the right words for private parts for both genders. For myself, I find penis too clinical, cock too porny, dick too juvenile, and my manhood simply ridiculous. Lady parts cause the same troubles with vagina, pussy, etc. Do you have any ideas for this? Thanks. Oh, that's up top. Um, I think we should note that the words are censored with like a weird like black highlighter text and you have to highlight over it to see the dirty words, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Um I will say, um I mean we mentioned in the last episode or two episodes ago, we don't really like to get into our own sex life, so I won't get into it too much, but you know what? I'll I'll say my favorite. Like if I'm gonna go for woman pussy, if I'm gonna go for my own thing, I'm going for uh, I'm going for for dick. Interesting. Uh, for my own thing, I usually go with throbbing member. Mm. And for a woman's thing, I usually say her uh, sanctimonious temple. Mm-hmm. Let me do a comedic one too. Uh, for for my own thing, Wait, I, I thought we were going serious. <laughs> <laughs> for my own thing, I usually go with uh, I usually go with big doink for my own thing and for my partner's thing i'll usually go for ew what what's that nasty (laughs) (laughs) oh man um what do you what how do you feel about words for um a woman's chest because there's that really famous sarah silverman quote that's very much on the same line as this that one is harder that one is genuinely like i don't know what to say and i found myself thinking there's no natural word for this The Sarah Silverman quotation is that, like, tits is too hard, breast is too formal, boobs is perfect. Oh, well, no. Boobs still sounds awkward. Sorry, Sarah Silverman. I gotta disagree, but I understand why you've had that thought, because none of them sound right. Well, you usually just say, uh, tickle bitties, right? (laughs) Uh, I I usually go for mammaries. (laughs) No, no, um... This this conversation is getting a little nastier than I usually like to get on this podcast. Well, I don't Paul, really, you nasty. I'm, we already knew. We, uh, uh, we already know it's a lie. We already know you nasty. I already said to the audience that Paul was the one who picked this one, so you already know where his mind's at. I'm cutting that out, bitch. <laughs> this is my section, baby. Damn it. <laughs> Just a little peek under the hood. Uh, pa- Paul and I each only edit half the episode, and we have no say about how the other one edits the other half. <laughs> and we re- Yeah. Yeah, and we we do it in an antagonistic way where I try and piss off Paul by how I edit the episode. Oh, ninety percent of what Adrian says in my section is like one of those things where he didn't say it at all. I've just cut and pasted words together. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. Um. Yeah. I don't know. So, Paul, do you have experience uh, sexting? And so you've already said like seriously what your what your preferred words are, right? Um. I will say that it it, it does make sense. A lot of these words have outside of a sexual context they either have an insulting or medical context and that's kind of the problem mm-hmm. right and that's what he mentions porny or clinical as being a problem for like slang for penis um or juvenile yeah. which is i guess kind of similar yeah it's just like the problem is we use these words for so many other things that in the bedroom it can feel awkward whether or not it's sexting or just like you're saying them in the bedroom you know what i mean Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what's really interesting so going back to paul's kind of meta narrative about how some of these words are blacked out uh vagina isn't presumably because it has that medical quality but my manhood is 
Uh, <laughs> I didn't even notice that. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> which seems like the least offensive one of all of these. Um, well, but but, but as a as a foil to vagina, penis is also not blocked out. Oh yeah, it's just italicized, which vagina isn't. Interesting, but pussy is. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't know how any of this works. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, I usually I usually stray on the um non-medical side and go for more of the porny ones just because I, I think that's uh i, I don't know I, I think they just work a little bit better for bedroom talk and then this, this would be a way better call like instead of sending i think the answer to this is instead of sending this question to an advice columnist send it to your fiance <laughs> it seems like this is very much in the realm of a like third 90 percent of relationship issue ones would work better if they just sent it to their fiance <laughs> yeah th- but this one specifically because it's not even something where you're critiquing the other person you're really critiquing the yourself. question is really uh, yeah. yeah just what does my partner prefer is probably the better way to yeah so the fact that you sent this to an advice column this is absolutely hilarious this one works perfectly for like a conversation would do fine <laughs> i don't know because I-, I will say this i think there was another question on uh the gentleman scholar uh canon where the person says how do i introduce my new girlfriend to all of my friends who happen to be women because i've slept with all of them and so i imagine that this is a man who's a real gentleman and has slept with a lot of ladies and so he needs more general advice mm. of like well that one makes more sense because you can't bring that to your partner because the whole thing is that you're trying to introduce a new idea to your partner um this one you could right there's nothing there's nothing you're trying to introduce her to your penis which (laughs) if you're like me you've nicknamed biggie smalls (laughs) keep them guessing yeah no this is funny though i do enjoy it i think uh the person who wrote this is probably having a little bit like of a lark (laughs) and i get it i'm i'm like i think most people listening to this have probably run into the problem unless you're completely like nonverbal during sex. Yeah. A good component of this is that it is texting, right? So yeah. it's not like yeah. saying stuff in person, which I think might have the kind of added leniency of like, it's a, it's one second that goes by where you pick the word and whether or not it works, you can kind of work through it. But if you're having something that you have to write out and you have to try and turn oh, somebody on. Oh yeah, there's on an editing process involved in this. I say, I say, copy off copy off somebody else's homework just start copy pasting off uh written pornos online i'm gonna say be a gentleman and hire an editor for your sex (laughs) that's awesome start start doing like (laughs) do byron poems and what are they gonna do call you out on it just like you get notes from your editor back on your sex and he's like i think the first part's okay but the second half seems to insist upon itself and i think you might need to (laughs) really i thought i thought you had a good uh intro and you had a a good finish but in the middle you were you it was a little self-indulgent in the middle i'm not gonna lie (laughs) (laughs) um yeah 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 i guess as you said you don't want to get too much into personal details on this but um I mean, you can. You can tell. You can tell me whatever you're comfortable putting out to the public, Adrian. <laughs> uh, boy, I don't know. I'm not much of a texture in the first place, so I only did this when I was younger, mm. and uh, I don't. Th- I don't remember really. Ooh, ooh don't tell me if it was before you were 18. A... We're not trying to get everybody who listens to this arrested. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, no. When I was before 18, I think the only thing that I wrote where I would have used these kind of words was my um blog where I wrote Wilfred Erotica. <laughs> Oh no! With with the blonde neighbor or with Wilfred involved? Because oh boy, it was Wilfred and Joe Budden. 
in Charlemagne the God. <laughs> oh no, holding them both down. Oh. And then I think um, I'll, I'll I'll end my advice by saying that I, I think Lady Gaga is the goat with bringing the term disco stick as a uh, <laughs> euphemism for penis. And I think that makes it sound fun. It makes it sound playful. Um, and it makes it sound like a good time. Mm-hmm. Also, when was this question added? Because why are they not doing this over video? 2015. Ooh, I guess maybe... No, 20... oh, 2014. 2014, most people knew about Skype and... Most people knew about Skype and FaceTime. You know, going back to what I said about how in person you can kind of get away with it because it's this ephemeral moment. I would almost feel more comfortable texting than trying to Skype sex. Mm. I don't know. Just that extra added layer of video makes it seem awkward to me. Well, I mean, it's because they've been in a relationship for a while. So it's not like there's no there's no boundaries being broken. So they can just say what they would usually say in person. I guess that's another good part. This person has been in a relationship for a while. Are they not verbal during their usual sex? Because obviously, if you are, just say what you would usually say. But I guess over text, maybe they're silent. You have to be sex. extremely verbal. Yeah. So over text, yeah. maybe so, this is a new territory for them. I would say instead of doing it over Skype or Zoom or something, I would do it over Facebook Messenger. <laughs> Because Facebook Messenger lets you play the little, like, mini-games if you set them up. Oh, my God. And so it'd be really fun to, like, play, like, the little skiing game with your penis where you have to, like, move it back and forth to avoid the obstacles. And I think she would get a whole lot of delight out of that. Or, like, you do the little game where the basketballs come and you have to put them in the hoop by moving your penis back and forth. Adrian, we totally missed the best one. It's it's text, buddy. You 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 can use the crazy characters and the stars and the asterisks and shit. You don't actually Mm. have to say any of them. Mm Mm-hmm. You can just put the eggplant emoji. <laughs> you can utilize, yeah, utilize everything that's available to you from the medium. And you see, a real gentleman would do that. I think that's pretty gentlemanly advice to not to not limit yourself, um, but rather to explore the medium available to you. Honestly, gentlemanly advice would be write, write your erotica in Latin. Mm. <laughs> Why are you texting it, you animal? Write it on ink on parchment <laughs> and send it by pigeon. Yeah, I think we might have caught on to what the uh, gentleman scholar is going to end up saying are you ready to read his answer yeah i'm interested (laughs) all right as always because he's a gentleman he always starts with thank you for your question given your expressed distastes i will point you towards monosyllabic denotations of cylindrical solidity rod seems to me less inherently farcical than pole or shaft but of course any of these may sound excessively coarse or flagrantly dumb to your ears just as pecker and prick will strike some other readers as the drawling drooling of a hormonal hayseed and Q, a French import, Wait, why is Q? Duly... Why is Q censored? Why are any of these censored? <laughs> why is pole or shaft censored? Okay, but... <laughs> what? But Q isn't even vaguely sexual. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's up to his discretion. Or actually, probably his editors. Uh, and a French import as unduly twee. But there is no arguing tastelessness, and there is a sort of corollary to Rule 34. Wait, 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 wait. After some... all this smug talk, he's going to bring up Rule 34. What is he going to write next? Yeet, yeah. yeet, homie. Shout out to the goat. We know gentlemen scholars into some fucking weird shit when he brings up <laughs> after Rule 34. After using the word monosyllabic, after using the phrase monosyllabic denotation, he's referencing Rule 34 like that can go together. <laughs> That's what I love about him. Is It's the yin and the yang. <laughs> inherently farcical get the fuck out of here (laughs) yeah keep going this is fun rule 34 decreeing that some loving heterosexual couple in the world finds it divine to refer to his schwanstocker 
as such. Good for them. And to those lovers who've yet to discover a happy synonym for the phallus, I recommend this timeline created from Jonathan Green's Dictionary of Slang as a magnificent tool that could be improved only by lifting some usages from Nicholson Baker's House of Holes, which employs Bulldog, Manjig, and Malcolm Gladwell, among many other naughty novel cognomens. Okay, I will mention that there's some links involved in this, which is why some of that didn't make sense when he says this timeline that's linked. But also, I will reference that I think Adrian's already come up with the best Malcolm Gladwell uh, naughty crossover, and he did it in a previous episode of Big Facts No Cap, when he said, no, that's what I call the tipping point. <laughs> I'm, get, I'm patting myself on the back for that one. Reader, you say that cock, which was not considered vulgar until the 1800s, seems too porny. But it isn't necessarily. But isn't this seeming semenness just a function of its frequent use? And isn't that frequency itself a proof of the words muscularity? More to the point, isn't a degree of porniness often desirable when conducting an intimate conversation? Specific sense talk is 1570s. I don't know what that... There's a link to that, but I don't know what that means. I'm having the same issue with David Tang, where at certain points it seems like he's talking a different language. Um, when conducting an intimate conversation about conversation, a synonym for sexual intercourse from at least 1511. Erotic talk, neurotophilia, let's call it, is filth by its nature, which goes to our pure essence. George Bataille supposed, when looking into related matters in his book Eroticism, quote, The whole business of eroticism is to strike to the most inmost core of the living being, so that the heart stands still. The transition from the normal state to that of erotic desire presupposes a partial dissolution of the person as he exists in the realm of discontinuity. Dissolution, this expression corresponds with dissolute life. The familiar phrase linked with erotic activity, ellipses, the whole business of eroticism is to destroy the self-contained character of the participators as they are in their normal lives. It's like kind of like a classic like when you let go of the masks we all wear during our daily lives and let yourself sort of become primal type argument that they're making okay that's how you know that uh the gentleman's caller fucks (laughs) yeah that they can't word that in a way that just makes sense as like huh sometimes we all be acting fake and be playing characters but then sometimes during sex it's nice to let that go and be a little bit more primal and so it may help your fiance get away from herself to hear her sexual organs identified with language that by the enlightenment of day looks rude at best but you really really ought to check in with her about that first for we are in the realm of considering the sonic nastiness of snatch and the night i actually don't think snatch is a word for 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 a woman's parts yeah that's for we nasty. are in the realm of considering the sonic nastiness of snatch and the nihilizing void of whole shout out the sartre and all those puerile terms with closed back rounded vowels cooter and poon and coos <laughs> it's awesome it's a, it's a goddamn it's like he went to the local like sixth grade playground and was like hey what do you guys know as synonyms for a vagine <laughs> I like at one point when it just became a uh, a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> and unavoidably, one word for women's genitals that, in Germaine Greer's view, demands to be taken seriously. In this matter, Greer is on the same wavelength as Caitlin Moran. Quote, Cunt is a proper, old, historic strong word. Ellipses. It's like I have a nuclear bomb in my underpants, or a mad tiger, or a gun. End quote. But the reader does not wish to grab the 
blunt cudgel of a weaponized lexemy. I sense, and so I suggest, a quaint euphemism. Further, let's note that Anias Nin did good work with the simple sex, that Peach is unimpeachably well-suited to a wholesome role in Laura Ashley's sheets, and that Jonathan Green's timeline of the slang of history of the vagina features entries for both it, which is deliciously anti-evocative, and you-know-what, which has a certain je ne sais quoi. Holy shit. Do you have, do you have like, a strong desire to beat the shit out of this person, or is that just me? Uh, no, after reading that, I have a strong desire to fuck. I'm about to hit up some <laughs> girls on Tinder. I'm joking. Shout out to Troy Patterson. <laughs> that, like, even though that was kind of annoying, it was also kind of awesome. I, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like if there was an episode of The Big Bang Theory where Sheldon becomes the cool Urkel. And someone asks him about sex, and this is the answer that he gives. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a nearly perfect way to describe it. <laughs> when he's Urkel or Sheldon, <laughs> and someone says, hey, I'm having problems sexting with my girlfriend. <laughs> um, Yeah, man. Okay, I think if there's one thing we've learned today, I mean, maybe it's a little bit early to do my no cap, but have some references in your bag, and that makes you a gentleman to some extent. Just like, fucking... I don't even know. I don't even know how they get these references because I doubt they read as much as they say they do. I think you just look for the highlights. Yeah, yeah, there's probably some of that. But I think you're right. Like, it's kind of like when we were talking on two weeks ago about the uh, about the bookshelf thing. And I think a large part of it is to purposely try to intimidate people. And maybe that's me showing myself as like, low class that I think the only way you could know about all these things is if you were trying to be intimidating. But there's just a part of me that's like, really? Mm. <laughs> that That's how you talk? <laughs> or not how you talk, because obviously it's written and edited, so it's not trying to be a conversation, but it's still like, really, that's like what comes to mind when somebody asks you that <laughs> yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unlike us, like he never says like, this question reminds me of It's Always Sunny and that scene in It's Always Sunny. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe the idea is that he does do more research. I mean, it is an edited thing, so maybe he's doing research and he's not necessarily hiding that fact. And he's not claiming that he's not doing research right. and uh, curating this mm-hmm, answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a cool answer. I do like it. I would actually read more from him. I'm sad he's not doing this column anymore. I think it's it's, uh, it's pretty fun. <laughs> um, similar to David Tang. I don't actually have an issue with this, even though it's kind of like an easy target to make fun of. It is all quality. Um, okay, Paul, are you ready for a third segment? I am ready. What'd you bring in for us this week, Adrian? All right. Well, you know, we've been on a big quiz kick and as always, you know that I'm trying to kind of figure out new ways to kind of format the quiz to make it a little bit more interesting. So this is going back to kind of the dad or dad segment, but in a less like fun way so i don't know what i'm saying in terms of trying to make it more interesting but it is another quiz where i'm going to read a statement i'm going to give you two possible answers and you have to decide which one's true okay is there there a theme yes okay so because we're talking about being gentlemen and we're talking about things that i often consider kind of stupid which is like classic etiquette manners rules we've talked before on the podcast about saying yes sir yes ma'am as southern uh men um these are kind of classic etiquette rules or manners and then what i'm going to be quizzing you on is why they exist what is the origin of these things and i'm going to give you a fake answer and a real answer and you have to decide which one's true i think i already know the handshake one if that's part of it but i'll leave it to you to bring it up (laughs) all right cool again we're doing pub trivia rules what i say is correct is correct and uh i think it's 
if we're going to go ahead and do like a preface, I think it's a little bit easier than some of the other quizzes. I, I think there's a very big thematic. Then do you want to leave off the yes, no section and just make it where I have to tell you the origin? How about let's do it this way. Let's do you can just guess. And then if you need help, you can get your two suggestions. Okay. How many of these are there? There's only 12. I say I get I get five. I want more. Like I want it to become a true false cards yeah like five hel- uh, like ask a friend like those are my five like boosters to make that question easier all right excellent i like that okay so here we go i'm gonna randomly generate a number all right so this question regards taking your hat off indoors paul why is it considered polite to take your hat off when you enter indoors i think that that is because you are leaving room for the spirits to escape so you're not like letting them loose into the house all right and is that your final answer that's my final answer that is incorrect damn it so how about this how about let's go now into the two suggestion okay okay all right so is it that artificially making yourself higher or taller than someone else was considered a sign of dominance or royalty so it was polite to humble yourself as someone's guest Ooh, by taking off your true. hat. True, that feels that feels true. You don't want to hear the second one? Oh, oh, there's two of them, and I have to guess between them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, the other one is headgear, hats, and armor used to be worn for legitimate protection from enemies and the elements. Taking it off inside someone's abode was a sign of trust. N- number one. Number one. All right, Paul. Incorrect twice. It is uh, the it. second one. Damn it. Ooh, okay, so let's do three, two, or three and two points. I get three if I guess it right myself. I get two points if I guess it right after you've given me the suggestion. All right, I like that. That means I do have to get a pen out, so hold on. Okay, yes. So I went up to my roommate, Tin, uh, when I was creating this quiz, and I asked if he was good at lying, and he helped me come up with these uh, fake ones, so. Um, oh, yeah, uh, make sure to cite your sources. Give credit as it's due. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. Four. Tin's becoming a real character on this podcast. Should we have him on? Is he interested? Ooh, you know what we should. Actually, I don't know why I thought I haven't thought of that before. I'll ask him one of these days. He's a very interesting person. Next question. Our next question concerns gifts at a bridal shower. Uh, Paul, what is the origin of giving gifts at a bridal shower? I think the origin of giving gifts at a bridal shower is. Oh God, that's hard. Oh, bridal shower. Oh. Giving gifts at a bridal shower, the origin is that you used to, right, you used to get, like, a dowry for the bride. You have to, you used to have to pay the bride's family to marry her. Uh, so this is specifically, like, someone's friends giving them gifts at a bridal shower. So it's coming from your own friends. Oh, well, um, people giving you, I don't know, is it something to do with, like, maybe, I, I, I couldn't know because it seems like it would still be the same function as when it originally happened which is sure when it first started happening it was people giving you like money to start a new life with or some sort of like start a new life fund Mm -hmm. and it feels like that's why we're still doing it so you're getting very close i'm gonna i'm not gonna count that though because you're missing a key component so here are the two options where you might get the key component um so option one it was a way of recycling materials as it was traditional for her older married friends to give the newlywed their old houseware and baby care materials or a way for women to obtain a dowry when her father did not approve of the marriage and would not pay for the dowry himself okay number two then all right paul two points on the board all right two points on the board 
not bad at all my boy yes you were very close to getting it on your own but yes it was very specifically the fact that if, if your father didn't approve of the marriage you needed to find a way to get the dowry yourself i'm gonna count by the way for some reason i'm feeling 18 points as my victory all right so now we're going to the use of separate forks for salads entrees and desserts mm. oh can you name the reason for separate forks for salads entrees and desserts because they're different functionalities like so for maybe like a seashell type fork you'd want something that could get up into the clam for salad you want something that can pierce a lot of vegetables for a dessert you want something with less prongs but that can like kind of cut through a cake and bring it to your like they're just like the different shapes have different functionalities paul unfortunately that is off the mark damn it we're gonna give you your two options is the function that forks were used to signify when you were finished with your dish, so you needed multiple ones for multiple dishes as they were taken away, or you don't want to transfer the flavors between dishes and it is impolite to lick your fork clean or to wipe it off with a napkin, so you needed multiple forks? I think, okay, so I'm going to mention, I think it's the second one because that feels more right, but also the first one does ring true to me because I goddamn hate it at a restaurant when you still have something to eat, but you're finished with <laughs> one plate, like especially yeah, yeah, at a yeah. buffet restaurant, and you put your fork down on the plate, and they take the fork away, and you're like, I would have still used that fork, like now I have to go ask for a fork. Hey, lady. <laughs> the other, Hey, lady, <laughs> I need a fork. <laughs> So that one rings true to me, but I feel like it's probably because of the second one at a formal dinner party, because you're not, that's not the same situation where you're worried about a waitress taking away your fork that you still want to use. Well, I think in those days it'd be a servant, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Paul, back on the board. You're correct. Nice. It is not, these were not golden corral rules. These were uh, <laughs> literally just about, I, I guess, yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of like how you eat caviar with a, a non-metal spoon because it reacts with what you're eating. You know, you need that extra separation. All right. Our next question, Paul, concerns shaking hands. Ooh, okay. Well, that one is to show that you don't have a weapon on you. Three points. Very good, Paul. Nice. Um, And so I know we talked about this last episode, but I'm going to give a quick shout out. I don't know how you learned that. I learned it from the Kondabulu Brothers podcast. So Hari Kondabulu and his brother are talking. Uh, yeah, and they were talking about, they had this whole segment, Overrated, Underrated, and they are talking about how corny handshakes were, and I love how two people not from Western society who, like, integrated later are talking about how handshakes are just the corniest thing, because I feel the exact same way. I fucking hate handshakes so much. Mm. For me, growing up, it was just a way for old white men to make fun of my hands for not being strong. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody recently was listening to our podcast from the beginning, and they, and they... I'm not going to lie, Adrian. This is going to be a real problem if we have a podcast because I steal a lot of your jokes that you make to me for my personal life to make people think I'm funny. And somebody was like, wait, you took the I'm of delicate constitution from Adrian? I thought you were funny when you said that. And I was like, <laughs> no! <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I think we exchange things. I, I say goof them up a lot now. Um, but yeah, no. So I always hated that. It was always... And, you mean not some of it was I, I not necessarily me being a very weak person, but it was also just me thinking that an aggressive handshake is, is really aggressive and I don't like mm. that. And so, no, I agree. It's a, a handshake culture is absurd. Like, I mean, it's kind of similar to us making fun of people who want you to wear a specific suit color to an interview. Right. The idea of having a firm handshake is absolutely cringy as far as like, obviously, how would that at all correlate to the quality of person? <laughs> It just means you were raised right. 
and you weren't rebellious. All right. First three-pointer for Paul. Killing it. I guess I should have known when you mentioned that you knew what was going on. Paul, this question concerns touching glasses for a toast. Hmm. Do you know? Yeah. Do you know why people toast and touch each other's glasses? Clink, I guess would be a better way to say it. That one is hard. I genuinely don't know. It's, it feels so natural and it makes sense, but I guess that's just because I've seen people do it for so long. I'm going to say it was a way... Was there at some point where it it started like you would tip your drink into each other a little bit and it would be like, oh, no, neither drink is poisoned because we're kind of like sharing the drink and then you can take a drink? Was it something to do with poisoning? So there's technically two reasons and if you get one of them that's correct do you you want that to be your final answer sure correct 100 percent correct yeah nice my fake answer for that one was that it was a way of coordinating when everyone took their first sip so that no one drank before the host allowed it (laughs) Um, that makes sense kind of too that's like that's like that's a cute one but yes it is derived from an earlier behavior where you would spill some of your drink into your neighbor's drink to signify that you trust them and that no one's poisoned anyone's drinks that's 100 percent it you basically got it verbatim Cool. Okay, so 10 points, 8 more to go. Alright. The reason that men pay for everything on a date? Um, generally just because of, well, I'm trying to think, like, dates weren't really a concept till like, the early, early 20th century. And that probably evolved because of, I mean, women didn't work and men did, so they just had the money, right? Uh, yeah, I'll accept that. Uh, it's more about who had like a long-standing career as opposed to like a part-time job because women would sometimes have like jobs to support themselves until they found the right man yes that that's basically it it's a pretty easy one the fake answer that i came up with was it was thought that women were too dumb to calculate the tip for a bill so it was polite to pay the bill and take the duty on oneself <laughs> that's awesome um Right. So my, my thing is, if we're gonna, can, can, can I just mention what I think is considered a touchy subject nowadays, which is like, uh, it's like one of those things that throws people off in modern dating, is that like, some people do like it when the man pays still, but I think most progressive younger people would generally rather not fall into that sort of like old school mentality of thinking. And I do remember that, like, it's kind of a funny story, or like, it's one of those stories that I think is probably funny for old people. It's like a classic, classic goof em up in that I had two friends who, by coincidence, didn't know each other and both knew me and went on a date off of like a, a Tinder date. Mm. And they both came to me after the date where like the girl was like, I went to a date with a guy. From, uh, I went on a date with a guy from Clemson and uh, there was like this really awkward moment where he was trying to pay the bill and I wanted to pay for half of it. And it was just like really uncomfortable. And then she didn't know I knew the guy, and he came to me later and told me the same story from his side of things, which mm. is, he opened with, is it weird for a guy to pay nowadays? And I was just like, oh my god, wait. And I made the connection that both those people had complained about each other to me. It didn't work out. The relationship did not work out. That's hilarious, um, though. I love that. She came in, she like took off her, I'm with her pin, she took off her like pussy hat, and then like asked that question, <laughs> and then like he came in. He like took off his fedora and his like he put out his cigar and was like, "Hey, well, you can't pay for a woman no more." Uh, I can see why that relationship didn't work out. 
<laughs> he also did something which was really funny to me because it was something you've told me about, which he also, she said, she said it was weird that he took her to a place where he knew everybody. And I know before you've told me one of your strategies was online dating is to like go to home territory and yeah, take yeah. them somewhere where you know you're comfortable and you try, know try and play with home field advantage. Yeah, apparently some girls don't like that. If you know the server and stuff, they feel uncomfortable. They feel like you're pulling some sort of uh, game on them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think it's right to feel offended if either the guy or girl wants to pick up the whole tab, I think. Or if you want to split it. But I think it's okay for one person to feel like, oh, let me pick up the whole thing this time, like treat you to something nice. I think that's nice that sometimes one person pays for the whole thing as just like a let me make this a gift so i did just have opinions on that and i don't know i yeah thought i would share it is it is like a complicated modern issue <laughs> of what to do about the bill honestly in a non-date sense i have a quick story about that where i went to lunch with my uh, undergrad research advisor um when i was like talking to him about getting into grad school and stuff i'd already graduated and so we ate lunch. I realized I forgot my wallet. And I was like, oh, yeah, are you paying for this? And he was like, I, I actually have a policy where as soon as you graduate, I don't pay for lunches anymore. <laughs> uh, and then I had to tell him, I was like, I, I forgot my wallet. I, I, I'd have no money. And he was like, oh, OK, I got you. <laughs> but like, yeah, That's I cute. was like, Jesus Christ. I was like, immediately once you're like, get your diploma. He's like, <laughs> you're rich now. I'm not going to pay for you anymore, you fucking scrub. Bye, um, bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, <laughs> you're making you're making those big grad school bucks. Like TA and really, <laughs> what well, you pooping on your gold throne and you want me to pay for you? <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Paul, this question concerns holding the door open for women. Mm. I think generally a woman used to have to carry her have to carry her uh, purse and have to carry her uh what else would a woman have to carry in her other hand? Yeah, and her right hand would generally traditionally be her purse. So she wouldn't have a hand to open the door. So that's why the gentleman would have to do it for her. Uh, we're not going to accept that, Paul. <laughs> Your two options. Uh, doors in buildings of high status were often well constructed and heavy. And it was considered impolite to make a woman try and open doors for herself. Or women used to wear really complex clothing and it was difficult for them to open doors because they were often restrictive. Number one. <laughs> I, I like the attempt with number two, but I don't know if you or ten came up with that. But I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. That was poorly formed. At best. Uh, no, it was number two. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Women used to wear corsets and all those other things. So like, they couldn't to... push with their hands. <laughs> no, they used to have like the hoop like skirts that like literally like was a larger diameter than from their hand to the door. Yeah. Well, Adrian, I'm going to politely ask you to edit this to be uh, nicer to me and not to make me look like such a fool. I'm going to make you look like a dumbass. This is, it, so for the same reason, uh, it's why men pull out chairs for women is the same thing. It's like It was hard for women to get a seat because they wore such cumbersome clothing. Damn it. All right. Well, now that you look like a goddamn fool, I'm going to subtract. Actually, that's a negative one point because not All only right. did you not take the right answer, you made fun of it for being ridiculous. Our next question, our penultimate question uh oh wait i'm at 17 qu points so if i don't get this one right it's really uh it's really intense for the audience hold up four seven ten thirteen fifteen seventeen no you're at 20 oh okay i have one okay so yeah, you're already good <laughs> wearing white after labor day 
Ooh, I have no idea, so whatever I say is going to be complete bullshit. But cut this out if what I say is funny. Yeah, I have no idea. I literally can't even think of a joke answer. Why would we? Like, what a stupid bullshit rule. So is it either white clothing is warm weather clothing, so you switch to dark clothes after Labor Day, and the rich were rich enough to afford both sets of clothing, or uh, it's one of a series of arbitrary rules used by women of status to weed out old money from new money. Number two. Paul, you are absolutely correct, and that one's kind of a trick question, because after looking into it, option one is a prevailing misinformation. Um, and it's actually, I had to read another article that seemed more scholarly that actually talked about how number two is the actual reason. Nice, nice. I like that. It's kind of similar to that thing about where everybody thinks it's a myth that um, a certain percentage of dust in a home is human is uh, dead human skin, I think like 30% or something. But apparently, based off a Smarter Everyday video where he really like dug into the scholarly articles and did a lot of research, it is actually pretty true that a substantial percentage of dust in any home is human skin. Oh, like so that's a confirmation of uh, the hearsay. Well, it's like one of those things where the, it, it was, the hearsay was considered false by people writing like second like degree articles where they're like clearly this is a myth this is one of those spiders you eat every day thing and he was like Mm. has anybody actually like that was the next one i was gonna bring up done the research to figure out (laughs) whether or not it is or isn't or are people just basing this off of like it sounds silly so it's not true and he did a whole video on it and it was basically like somewhat true interesting all right paul we're on the last question saying bless you after you sneeze i think i know this one i feel like this one is like the handshake one relatively common knowledge which is the belief was that that spirits or demons or bad spirits bad energy was leaving your body in some way and the bless you was blessing you so they wouldn't re-enter um all right paul you get a big goose egg for that one damn it because you stated our fault answer. Damn so it. I, I can't give you the two Is options. Is that a common myth? That's not true. It's, it's exactly like the same uh, as the last one, yeah. So people like to say that's because in medieval times, they thought sneezing indicated your soul was leaving your body and evil spirits were entering. But the actual reason is that it's from when Pope Gregory I decreed that people have to say bless you after people sneeze because he was worried that sneezing indicated someone had contracted the bubonic plague. And indeed, that was a common symptom of the plague. Oh, that actually makes way more sense. People weren't just fucking stupid dumbasses, but rather there was like... It's when you. It's like when you learn that people didn't actually think the world was flat. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's exactly the like, same thing. Yeah. Since ancient Egypt, people had done like experiments with shadows and most people knew it was round. In Where fact, they got like... to a mysteriously accurate number of how, like what the diameter of the earth was. Yeah, or the circumference. Yeah. All right, Paul, so you ended with a really solid 22 points. Nice, nice. And I think, well, 12 questions, so that means... 36. Was the uh, perfect round, but that means if I'd gotten two points on each one, so I got enough threes to make up for the ones where I got zero. And I think that's admirable score. Another episode wrapped up. Paul, big fact, no cap, let's get out of here. And my no cap is that it's important to understand that a lot of cultural customs are maintained through hegemonic power of the upper class and that a lot of them were just signifiers for class status and fuck them all and deconstruct them all 
and let's rebuild society from the ground up. Okay, and I'll restate mine. So, big fact, I don't know if if people are much smarter than me, or if some people just collect references and quotes as a way to intimidate me um, with their gentlemanly speech and scholarly ways, but like Schoolboy Q said on the song Vice City, y'all saying big words like philosophy, y'all weird, homie. You be talking boss saying big words like philosophies, man, you weird, homie. Beautiful. Also, Paul, do you want to just take a quick second to talk about the fact that, like, so many traditions, a- a- along with class signifiers, are like, I'm going to make sure you're not trying to kill me. Like, what a fun <laughs> time to live in. <laughs> Back then, yeah, I-, I generally feel like we're too safe nowadays. The threat yeah. of death really, like, brought a spice to life. Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, fun time, Paul. Really enjoyed this. Um, I'll see you next week. Yeah, dude. It's been it's been really fun, for sure. All right. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Big money, big booty, bitches, man. That shit gonna be death for me. Big problems, I must admit it, man. That shit gonna be death for me. I prayed to a C note. My mama gave a pope. I can't stand myself. I just bought a new coat. I might go broke. I can't stand myself. Big money, big booty, bitches, man. That shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs>